Welcome to the Sheila Pama Extractive Podcast. Today is a real pleasure for me to welcome Franny Leo Tim. Franny is a well-respected finance and development professional having held leadership roles at the World Bank, the African Development Bank, and the Trade and Development Bank. She's currently a senior partner at Southbridge Group and CEO of Southbridge Investments. She chairs several boards, including the board of Northside Finance. Franny, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I look forward to chatting with you today. Thank you, Sheila. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. So, you know, on this subject of uh, fossil fuels and decarbonizing the environment, uh, you know, there's a lot of geopolitics uh, at play. Give us your sense of the current geopolitical framework around this whole subject matter. So the geopolitical framework uh, has changed uh, recently because of what's going on around the world. Uh, Many economies had just completed uh, the uh, strategy for dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And as they were working themselves out of that, we had the war in Ukraine. And both of those events coincided and contributed to the very high food prices that we're seeing, the energy prices that we're seeing, and also some of the major constraints to important supply chains. So all of those factors have come together to have an impact on the uh, economies of countries. And of course, this is combined with the very important work that had been ongoing and continues to proceed on the decarbonization and transitioning to lower carbon economies. So that particularly has an impact on on critical sectors. Uh, Those countries that are major exporters of hydrocarbons are having right now a benefit because the prices are high. Of course, they had a very uh, strong uh, negative impact during the COVID pandemic when travel and other activities that use hydrocarbons uh, declined. And of course, the countries that are importing hydrocarbons are having uh, more steeper prices now and that's impacting their import bills and therefore their economies. And they had a benefit during the early days of the pandemic because the cost of of hydrocarbons had come down. And that of course is impacting also the cost of transitioning to renewable sources of energy, uh, not only because of the impact of these big uh, risk factors at the geopolitical level uh, on the hydrocarbon prices, but also on the declining costs and the shifting parameters around different forms of renewable energy. So in general, the the situation around the hydrocarbon uh, markets and its impact on energy markets and the broader economies of countries is highly volatile and has been changing and shifting over the last 24 to 36 months. And of course, countries are having very different uh, influences and impacts of those geopolitical factors. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because you you are obviously recognizing not only the volatility, but also that the impact on producers is naturally different uh, from uh, those who import hydrocarbons. But I mean, when one speaks of geopolitics, uh, quite apart from individual sovereign states, one automatically also thinks of economic blocks. 
I wonder whether you have a view on how geopolitically uh, the world's economic blocks like Europe, uh, North America, in this instance, are positioning themselves, especially relative to their trade partners in Africa. I think one of the most uh, interesting elements that came out during this period of turbulence uh, has been the definition of what is renewable energy. And I think when you look at the European Union and the definition that they came out with, it included natural gas as a transition fuel and also nuclear energy. So that has given a big impact, if you like, on the natural gas sector and on the nuclear energy sector. And then you look on the African side, if you look at the continental free trade area and the block of trading economies in Africa, because the uh, continental free trade area was launched just when COVID had kicked in, uh, the, the countries have been working together to secure some of the major products and therefore drive some of the prices of those products around the world. So you look, for example, at the negotiation that just took place on the grain side to make sure that Africa can get grains at favorable prices uh, and, and to minimize or reduce the impact of the escalation in food prices as a result of the war. And likewise, countries are working together to see how they can bring down the cost of importing energy inputs in particular. And maybe the most significant other area is when you look at economies like the East African community who have agreed now that they will negotiate jointly for products uh, in the energy space uh, that go across multiple geographies, such that what you ask for, for instance, in local content can be satisfied in one geography and doesn't necessarily have to apply exactly in the same way across another geography if you're talking about a pipeline, for example. And this is the case of Uganda and Tanzania, uh, where recently they've agreed on, on that approach. So I think these three areas are very interesting to note because they're showing the power of negotiating as a block, but they're also showing the uniqueness and differences and how the world can then find itself in a situation where at times the final position of the block does not align the world towards the same common objective. And then we have to go back and undo or redo some of the discussions in order to get there. Yeah, that, that is a very, I think, important observation and very useful because when one looks at uh, the EU Energy Commission and its changing views on uh, whether or not gas is uh, a transition energy uh, source and whether or not uh, uranium should also be part of uh, the resources that we deploy, you see how these two steps forward and one step backward in order to uh, align positions is very important. But you, you've, you've focused on uh, the EU and gas, understandably, uh, especially because of uh, East Africa's uh, natural liquid gas uh, resources. But uh, what of uh, the US and China? What do we know about how these changing fortunes are impacting the way these two uh, major players uh, are viewing Africa? 
So if you take the United States, uh, for example, uh, before the war in Ukraine and before this very high escalation in the prices of natural gas, it was almost uh, difficult to imagine that the U.S. could actually sell natural gas to Europe. But now with what's going on, that market is becoming feasible. So I think the global turbulence in energy prices and the geospatial distribution of those demands for energy and the sources of supply uh, can shift and make it therefore feasible what was not feasible before. So that's to me one of the big changes that uh, I have observed. Uh, when it comes to China during the pandemic because of the slowdown in the manufacturing and shipping industry, the demand for energy by China and some mining products had gone down. But then as the country started to resume and go back to normal in terms of its manufacturing uh, capacity, though that demand uh, has increased and it has had an impact then on prices. And that is true not only for minerals and rare earths, but also for oil and gas and other major imports uh, from the mining sector. So uh, one of the things that intrigues me, Freni, is that um, despite the Middle East uh, petroleum producers having a lot of influence uh, in the petroleum sector commodity markets, one rarely hears of any kind of major uh, bilateral arrangements between uh, the Africa region and, and that region. And, and I just wonder what you know, your take is, what should we make of that? And, and if Africa should reach out to our Middle East neighbors, how should we construct that engagement? At the moment, the relationships between Africa and the uh, Middle East, uh, including uh, countries like the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and so on, has been more one of where the Middle East imports food products from Africa, some inputs, uh, particularly in the, in the mineral sector, and especially the kind of uh, um, rare metals that are used for uh, making jewelry and things like that. And then to the largest extent, Africa has been importing from the Middle East uh, products like uh, hydrocarbons, but also using to a large extent the logistics capabilities of countries like, for example, uh, Dubai and it becoming most of the, uh, becoming the important place where most of the packaging and redistribution and these logistics activities take place. And then more recently, there have also been financial uh, relations with these countries opening up international financial centers like in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. So those tend to be the three main activities that take place uh, between the regions. And because Africa doesn't do uh, sufficient uh, transformation of its primary products on the continent, it ends up being mostly a primary product supplier to most economies in the world, and that includes uh, the Middle East. Uh, so one of the uh, things that I've noticed changing recently is some of these new businesses that are developing. For example, if you take um, countries like uh, the United Arab Emirates, they have invested heavily on the, the knowledge economy and the uh, 
fourth industrial revolution type products. And now you begin to see relationships between the UAE and Africa around those knowledge products and services that tap into the information and communication technology, the digital economy, and is opening up new types of engagements between Africa and the UAE. If you take a country like Saudi Arabia, because of the windfall that they have received in these high energy price environments, they've created a big focus on renewable energy, and they are now looking to invest in Africa in areas of renewable energy, including in looking at forestation as one of the opportunities to create effective carbon sinks. And as you may know now, Africa actually holds the largest carbon sequestration assets around the world, uh, bigger than the Amazon, for example, in Brazil. And uh, this is becoming a huge center of attention for some of those economies in, in the Middle East. Um, and then there are other areas that are also uh, increasing over the years. You see, for instance, uh, Qatar has made a heavy investment in the education sector and, uh, and works closely with African economies to um, build up the education sector and quality of education in particular, which is driven by the World Innovation Summit on Education and the price that is issued each year to big players in, in that space. So I think things are changing, uh, perhaps a little bit slower than one would have uh, anticipated or hoped, but I think the trend is moving in the right direction. And this is also true when you look at the relationships between uh, Europe and Africa, where uh, there are now much broader conversations around strategic partnerships when it comes to things like renewable energy, uh, trade, uh, but also in how to create jobs within Africa so that there will be less out-migration with these high risks of people uh, who are seeking to, to move to Europe and crossing the Mediterranean at high risk. So there's much more collaboration in those areas. And more recently, again, huge uh, collaboration around technology and the digital economy, which is also a business-to-business -business collaboration going beyond the government-to-government -government collaboration that used to be there before. And then, of course, uh, we have had now a very successful U.S.-Africa forum uh, in Marrakesh, and it's going to be followed by U.S.-Africa forum in Washington in December. And that is really giving Africa a huge opportunity to be uh, engaged uh, with the United States uh, beyond the levels that it was engaged uh, previously. Uh, and that is not only in the areas of power and uh, with initiatives like Power Africa, but has already been there, of course, in the health sector with the collaboration uh, around uh, PEPFAR. Uh, and uh, I myself am very pleased to say that very soon there would be direct flights between the United States and Tanzania, which did not exist before. So even on the travel and logistics side, things are changing. That's fantastic. I agree with you on uh, several factors. The first being that uh, when one thinks of Africa's trade partners, we must avoid the temptation to revert to old traditional uh, partners and look at emerging market countries. But I also uh, acknowledge that Qatar particularly 
in recent times has reached out, as you may well know, in Namibia uh, over the discovery of oil and gas, which is uh, a first in terms of that uh, kind of development. And, and so the more we shop around, uh, the, the more we are able to extract the best uh, value proposition. But, but I, I did want to just follow up on the US-Africa forum. I, I've been watching this uh, with some interest and wondering um, what is it that is fundamentally different uh, to start with, but also wondering to myself, how does a single sovereign uh, state like the United States uh, have a protocol that is sufficiently detailed and structured to speak to the needs of 54, 55 uh, sovereign states on the continent? I, I struggle to see how that uh, you know, moves forward other than uh, pure rhetoric. Can you uh, put my mind as rest, uh, Freni? Um, I, I've been observing these uh, regional forums uh, with Africa. So you had, of course, the uh, FOCAC, which uh, is the China-Africa forum, which I think now is happening for many years. You have TICAD, which is with uh, Japan. You have the Brazil-Africa forum. You have the Europe-Africa forum. And you have the US-Africa forum. So it looks like the whole world really is designing these event spaces and discussion and dialogue spaces that link a, a single country to a continent. And the only different one I would say is the Europe Africa because it's the European Commission and the African Union Commission working together. So you could say it's regional block to regional block. What, what do I see as being different this time around and specifically you asked me about the US Africa Forum. I think the first thing that is different is the people-to-people -people space. Uh, there's been a lot of engagement between Africa and the rest of the world. And if you take the United States, this has happened in the field of music because right now, if you are not booking African musicians or looking at what is coming out of Africa in terms of music, you are missing a big scene. So the markets around uh, music have, have, have really focused a lot on young talent in Africa. The second one is sports, again, with a big exchange between Africa and uh, the US, but also with the rest of the world, where young, talented Africans are more and more finding themselves with opportunities to play in the major leagues and the major teams of the world. And that people-to-people -people link is also driving the change because then people get to know each other and once they know each other they get to trade with each other and engage in more uh, formal exchanges around investment and other opportunities and then of course the 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 diaspora element is very important you notice that the regions that have a large african diaspora the united states brazil europe are also having a different relation to africa because the people in the diaspora are creating connections, they're investing on the continent, and they're creating opportunities uh, to look at the continent differently. And then finally, there are all these uh, uh, changes in the uh, sort of way in which business is conducted uh, and the, 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 the search for diversification 
and not to be too dependent on one economy. Because we've seen, for example, with the effects of the pandemic, is that when you are too dependent on one economy or one sub-region, you can get in real difficulty when things go wrong. So a lot of countries are looking to diversify uh, their dependence, for example, on Asia, and they're looking at Africa as one of the opportunity spaces for manufacturing capacity and being able to source materials and, and products and services from there. I'm very in, uh, interested, for example, to note that all the major tech companies are now established in Africa, whether it's Google, Apple, Amazon, uh, Meta, and so on, because they're seeing this opportunity of the talent space and the ability to do innovative research also in these uh, fast-moving uh, and high-tech areas. And I think that uh, opportunity space is driven by Africa really being one of the, the only regions right now that is growing in terms of its population and therefore becoming more and more youthful. Already the bulk, vast bulk of the population in Africa is under 25 years old. It ranges from 60 to 80% of the population depending on the country you're looking at. And so that's a huge opportunity for cre creativity, innovation, and ability to generate new ways of doing things. Mm. You are right to recognize how much the whole notion of inclusivity and inclusion has uh, changed the dynamic in terms of opportunities, both at the uh, technical specialist area to C-suite to non-executive. I've seen that the world is much more open to uh, welcoming uh, different uh, contributors. But I think you're also right in recognizing that one of the greatest lessons from the COVID pandemic was how uh, constrained supply chains were and how dependency on in certain routes and how dependency on certain sources meant that for many uh, industries, there just simply was no uh, pipeline coming through. And so I think that it has made uh, investors, producers, and service providers think about their geographic footprint and be more, uh, you know, flexible in order to be more resilient in, in the long run. Uh, I, I want to, because I'm mindful we are approaching uh, COP27, I, I wanted to tease you and, and ask you, you know, when you think of uh, the Pan-African position at the COPS, in how effective would you say uh, the region has been in articulating its position, uh, but also in extracting the kind of uh, commitment and support that it deserves, especially to your point that uh, when it comes to carbon sequestration, uh, Africa is going to contribute tremendously to saving the world, thanks to our low carbon footprint. I think the coordinated uh, voice and position of Africa is improving uh, over the different COPs. And my hope is that since COP27 is taking place in Africa, that Africa makes a much bigger effort to actually come with a coordinated and a strong voice on what would be beneficial to Africa. Now, knowing that, as you mentioned earlier, Africa is 54 countries, and each of the countries has a very different 
challenge when it comes to to climate change and climate risks, uh, but also different opportunities. And um, maybe the three areas that I think have shifted over the last three years or so, uh, the first one is to say that um, uh, climate justice really has to uh, uh, move away from sometimes hypocritical positioning by countries that say one thing and then do another thing. And this has come mostly around the debate on how much push Africa should put towards uh, renewable energy and seeking partnerships that will support the sometimes quite costly delivery of those solutions, but at the same time to bring in the kind of innovation and transformation that can only be done in a continent that has not yet connected all its people to electricity. So there is an opportunity space there. And I see a lot more coordinated argument around that, saying we are ready to move in the direction of renewable energy and a new way of delivering uh, electricity and energy solutions on the continent, but we are looking for partners who will help us drive that cost down and mitigate the transition costs because we shouldn't be the continent that has to pay higher prices to get connected to electricity when the rest of the world continues to burn hydrocarbons and is not making the transition at the same level. The second important coordination point that I see uh, emerging has to do with how African countries themselves are trading with each other on the natural resources that they have. To say, yes, we have to in the transition period, as we move towards lower carbon economies, we will use the uh, hydrocarbon resources that we have. But as we transition to, towards that lower carbon economy, we will give preference to using those hydrocarbon resources for Africa's own development, we, either through the domestic uh, economy or through exporting to neighbors in the continent. And that argument then shows that for the same level of carbon into the, the, uh, into the atmosphere, uh, the development impact within Africa could be tremendously higher than, let's say, if Africa were to export those hydrocarbons and then not use the revenues earned for development purposes. So there, that is the second logic that I see coming in terms of coordination. But maybe the third one, and I think this is the one I find most exciting, is that countries have already agreed to work with each other to create these energy trading corridors. So now you can trade energy between South Africa and Ethiopia. And that whole corridor uh, has uh, the transmission networks connected, which means when you switch now from the current sources of energy generation to renewable sources, you already have the trading platform uh, in place. And that's very helpful because some of the renewable energy sources are, are not uh, available 100% of the time, but there are some countries that can switch, for example, from solar during the day to wind at night and other, because they have long coastal um, areas and others have wind basically 24 hours a day and they can produce that kind of energy or those that have geothermal sources and are able to then deliver more than what their economy needs and can benefit then from this 
trading uh, platform and using that interconnected transmission network. And I think this is very exciting because it's creating opportunities for different ways to think about the energy solution. And then related to that on the hydrocarbon side, I'm seeing countries that are looking at developing pipelines for transporting hydrocarbons are already thinking ahead about the hydrogen economy and seeing how that investment can be made in a way that uh, prepares the transition to the hydrogen economy from the get-go to avoid all those, those very expensive uh, costs of retooling or refitting when you switch then from one source to the other. And of course, we cannot uh, uh, not look at the example that Namibia has taken where it has made a massive, massive investment in the hydrogen economy and is also looking to export that into Europe and has uh, generated support from countries like Germany and the UK to help them uh, get there. So I think these are very exciting because they show that the continent is coordinating with countries looking not only at their own economies and their, their own self-interest, but also how that can deliver impact to the nearest neighbors and how it can help leapfrog into new ways of doing things that are already low carbon in their thinking from the get-go. Uh, I'm mindful that this is uh, probably too simplistic a, a question, but I'm looking for a succinct answer from you. Why should we still consider the COPs credible? When you look at COP26 and where we are, uh, it almost in some respects looks like uh, light days away. Uh, we were concrete, we were going to ban fossil fuels, we were even unsure of uh, oil, much less uh, uh, coal. And yet Europe uh, has recommissioned some of its thermal energy uh, stations. Why should we still think of the COPs as credible? I think it's because of what you said earlier, that it's two steps forward, one step back, which still means one step forward. So these negotiations are difficult. Sometimes they get unwound and you find yourself sliding back. But when you look at the long run, you see that there are big jumps that get made and those are very important and critical. So for example, if it wasn't for what was agreed at the Paris Accord, you wouldn't have the pressure that resulted in one of the largest legislative changes in the United States in favor of climate. So there is a link, even though in between there were a lot of movements that made it quite dicey that things would move in a certain direction. But when you look at the longer trends, you see that those are working towards the right direction. And when I position that then vis-a-vis -vis Africa, I see that, for example, at each COP, there are discussions around uh, what Africa should do, how it should move. And then you look back then, oh, and you look at a decade of, of activity and investment, and you see that indeed, things have happened in Africa that couldn't possibly happen in other regions of the world because Africa can. And it can because it, it doesn't have many other alternatives and therefore, looking at an alternative that takes you into the future is just as well as looking at an alternative that uses old technology. And I think this is where FinTech, clean tech, 
medtech, edtech, all of these solutions have allowed Africa to leapfrog ahead in ways that is more difficult for countries that already are locked into traditional technologies. So I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, even though the COP process is two step forwards, one step back, we are advancing one step forward at each stage. And sometimes it gives us the opportunity for these breakthrough agreements, as we have seen now in the example of this legislation that just went through in the United States, which has been building up since the COP uh, uh, discussions of previous years, and particularly the world agreeing on the 1.5 degrees uh, centigrade for keeping the world uh, uh, in less turmoil going forward than if we were not to do anything. And I think this uh, it's moved the conversation well, well below the two degrees, which are already people are taking as a, as a breakthrough and pushing forward to 1.5 degrees and seeing that the kind of solutions you can bring in place uh, can be done in a way that generates jobs, creates opportunities for innovation, brings uh, uh, regions together in, in finding solutions that work for everyone, but at the same time are grounded very strongly in self-interest. Fantastic. Well, you've said a mouthful, uh, Freni. I'm sure the followers of the Sheila Kama Extractive podcast will enjoy listening to you. I certainly have. Thank you very much for joining me. And thank you very much, Sheila, for inviting me to your influential podcast. And I look forward to listening to other guests that you have.